This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Daly. Our guest this week is USDA Secretary Tom Vilsack. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. Crop insurance, the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Ag Secretary Tom Vilsack next. Today's Open Mic segment is brought to you by America's crop insurance industry, which is thankful for the continued support of farmers, commodity organizations, rural businesses, lenders, and lawmakers who are fighting to maintain a strong farm safety net, providing individualized protection on more than 490 million acres of farmland. Crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack is keeping a close eye on the cyclical swings in revenue in commodities and in agriculture and the various regions of the nation. The Iowa Democrat points to recent research identifying disparity in not only commodities, but in the size of operations in the nation. In these record years, in these records of high income, nearly half of farmers in this country had negative farm income. I think the question has got to be answered that for a few farmers, for large-scale commercial operators, this has been a pretty good time, and I expect it will continue. For some of the smaller and mid-sized operators, I think it is incumbent on USDA to continue to lay the foundation that we've started over the last two years of creating new ways for those small and mid-sized operators to generate income beyond selling a crop or feeding a crop to livestock and then selling the livestock or the product of livestock. And I think that's an important consideration when we look at the Climate Smart Partnerships, when we look at the expanded processing capacity that we're investing in, when we look at the work we're doing on organic transition assistance, the work we're doing in terms of local and regional food systems, and the work that we're doing in just generally trying to create new opportunities for farmers to better utilize the land and natural resource advantage they have so they can stay in business. And I think that's the that's a big challenge. I think we're up to it. I think American agriculture, I think uh, policymakers are up to it, and I think we have, because of the infrastructure bill, the Inflation Reduction Act, the American Rescue Plan, resources, we have the ability to actually lay a very solid foundation. How much latitude so, do you have now as secretary to address that observation of the disparity between the large and the small and medium-sized farm, and how much attention should be drawn to congressional leaders as we're looking at crafting a new farm bill? Well, I think it's a little bit of both. I think we have, because of the resources that have been provided by Congress uh, through those bills that I mentioned, and the president directing me to do what I can to use the tools at USDA to, to sort of, as he likes to say, build a stronger middle class in rural places from the bottom up and middle out, we can make investments and are making investments, significant investments, to try to build that foundation. The challenge, I think, is to ensure that the resources that we have and that we will have by virtue of those uh, pieces of legislation continue, that, that, that there isn't the uh, temptation to essentially 
take money from some of those bills and apply it someplace else. And that gets into the whole discussion of how we go about crafting a farm bill and recognizing this distinction. If you remember, you may have been, you might actually have been at this, at the World Dairy Forum a couple years ago when Secretary Purdue was asked about dairy farms. You know, he indicated that because of economies of scale, that many producers are faced with a dilemma of either getting bigger or getting out. And he further explained it as saying, well, you know, it's just, it's, it's the economies of scale. And I, and I think, you know, it was a, it, it's a fair statement to make if that's the only option, all right? If we have a commodity-based system where you get, you know, you've got to produce a lot to be able to generate income, that really forces you to get big. And, and the challenge, of course, is those who are big are in a better position to continue to expand because they have financial wherewithal to do so. So I think, uh, you know, as we, as we look at a farm bill, I think the key here is to make sure that we continue to have the safety net and, and, all, and all of the programs that are really designed to, to sort of maintain and to protect those who are most at risk uh, in terms of financial um, the large-scale operations, but at the same time, find resources and 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 support for building those alternative market opportunities, those uh, uh, those ways in which farmers can qualify for ecosystem service markets, farmers can be owners of processing uh, and production uh, operations, uh, ways in which we can convert agricultural waste that may be a problem today that now becomes an ingredient that creates another revenue stream and source for farmers. So I think that's the that's the key here, and I think I think we're at a, transform, a transformational moment uh, in American agriculture as we were 60 years ago. Uh, and I think uh, you know I'm, I'm excited about the opportunity to work with Congress to make sure they understand the opportunity they have. Let's delve one area quickly then with the additional funds that came from the 117th. How do they help existing or perhaps future conservation programs that are within your authority? And from your perspective, can Congress redirect those funds in the new bill? Well, uh, clearly those conservation resources can help cement and and uh, create a permanency, if you will, uh, for a commitment to climate smart agricultural practices, which will lead to a more productive soil and cleaner and better water, which are two very important, valuable uh, deliverables of this. But will also uh, create the opportunity for those farmers who are investing in those conservation practices, as they quantify the result from a greenhouse gas reduction. Uh, standpoint or carbon sequestration standpoint, as they quantify those results, they, they can essentially go on the market and essentially sell those results, if you will, uh, to someone who is in need of them to offset their own emissions. And that creates an income source uh, for farmers, um, which they don't have today, which they now will have. Uh, so I think it's it's vital and important that those conservation resources remain intact and that there is not a temptation to redirect them to some other aspect of the budget or of you know budget reductions or whatever people are currently talking about. Last week on this uh, program, Congressman Frank Lucas was quick to point out your assistance personally with helping to bring farm legislation to a conclusion. And, and while it is your responsibility to write regs and implement the laws that Congress approved, what are the things that you might suggest to uh, Chairman Thompson or Chairwoman Stabenow that really ought to be uh, reviewed or amended in the new program? 
you know, there's a laundry list, obviously, of things, uh, of small modifications and changes to various programs that we are providing from a technical assistance standpoint as they begin the process of crafting a farm bill. I, I would say one thing that uh, they do need to keep in mind uh, as they are crafting uh, this, this bill is the need for flexibility. Uh, and particularly as it relates, uh, but not limited, but particularly as it relates to disaster systems. I think we've found and learned over the last couple of years that we've had disasters that we didn't know even existed. I, I didn't know what a derecho was, you know, <laughs> until a couple of years ago. We now know what they are, and they can be incredibly devastating. And, and you know, and, and uh, you know, we have a drought in California, and then we have torrential rain that causes flooding. The, the climate is, is unsettled, and it's unsettled in different areas and different regions of the countries and is reflected in different uh, levels of disaster and different intensity to disasters. And if you have one-size-fits-all, it doesn't necessarily meet the need of you know a particular region of the country. So one thing would be to make sure that as we look at disaster assistance, whether it be for crops or livestock, especially crops, whatever it might be, that there be some degree of flexibility uh, in being able to apply those resources uh, as the as the moment requires. That's one area. I think the second area is, is as I uh, sort of alluded to, I think it's important that the structure that's in place that promotes the, the bioeconomy and conversion of agricultural waste into something more valuable, I'm thinking of sustainable aviation fuel, we have projects that we recently funded where there's a, an asphalt that can be made from from soybeans uh, that can potentially reduce the cost of improving road systems in rural places. As we develop more of those opportunities, you know, we want to make sure that the Farm Bill is supportive of that. We want to make sure that it continues to be supportive of creating those local and regional markets that complement the commercial-sized uh, markets that, that, that are required and important, and especially as it relates to exports. So it's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a balancing act here, Jeff, mm -hmm. uh, where you, you've got you got to recognize the important role that commercial-sized uh, operations play, but you also have to say you don't want to give in to the notion that that's you know that's the only future for American agriculture. You'd like to think that there's still an opportunity for folks who want to stay small or want to stay mid-sized to be able to do that and still be able to pass the farm on to their kids. So while des de describing the tedious nature of policy. How could Congress provide you more flexibility for disaster assistance from USDA without at the same time affecting the level of farmers' up purchases or additional coverage under crop insurance? Well, crop insurance is, is certainly one avenue, and I think we've seen over the course of the last decade an effort on, on the part of the risk management agency, RMA, that uh, sort of operates the crop insurance program to look for creative ways to provide more risk management tools. Having said that, we seem to always have to supplement those tools with additional resources given, again, the intensity and magnitude of some of the disasters that have struck American agriculture. And it's particularly, you know, relative to, to livestock. You know, we have programs uh, on the livestock side, but those programs, for example, didn't envision mega droughts. I think they envisioned, you know, a drought that lasts a year or two. But we didn't envision a drought that lasted three, four, five, six, ten years. That obviously impacts and affects the level of feed that's available, the level, you know, the level of, of uh, rangeland that's available, and that obviously impacts and affects a multitude of, of you know livestock. I, I think it's important to to have a complementary system where 
there is a uh, disaster program that is adequately funded, but that has the flexibility that allows you to respond to a, a horrific snowstorm in the Dakotas that happens in April and a dramatic derecho that hits Iowa in June and a hurricane that is massive in scope that hits you know, Florida and Georgia in November. You just have to have the ability to have tools to be able to get farmers in it to keep them on the land you know and that that's the other piece of this jeff i think you know the reality is that you know we have two basic systems for financing all of this either farmers can go to their local bank take a loan put a crop in the ground sell the crop pay the loan off and it just goes repeats year after year but a lot of farmers are not able to do that either because they're beginning farmers or they've had a tough year and maybe the banker's a little bit nervous about it so they've got to come to usda and in the past our thought process on this was, well, okay, here's here's a loan. If you can't make the payment, you know, for whatever good reason, uh, you know, that's okay. We'll work for you for a while, but eventually we will create an adversarial circumstance where the USDA will basically say, look, you got to give us give us the farm. You got to give us the collateral that you pledged. And we're using the resources from uh, the the Inflation Reduction Act to take a look at ways in which we can be an even better uh, partner with farmers to try to keep them on the land, try to make sure that they don't get in a circumstance and situation where we're forced to, into that adversarial circumstance. And so that's kind of a change as well. Uh, and again, as, far, as, as the you know, committee's looking at putting a farm bill together, they've got to think about things like that. I wish the questions were easier. Unfortunately, they're not. So a bigger picture question is, how do you address reference prices that are uh, close to or maybe even below the cost of production? Yeah, This summer, Chairman Thompson used the uh, shifting programs to a margin coverage for crops to try to make uh, provide more coverage for the dollars that are going to be available. Well, I th- you know, I think... Uh, there are a lot of different ways to approach this. Um, you know, we have that margin uh, coverage program uh, in the dairy industry. Uh, and, you know, the reality is that uh, we put it together. Uh, we've had to make several adjustments to it, um, uh, it because it's not easy. It's not easy to accurately uh, identify the cost of production from region to region. And that's one of the challenges, right? I mean, it may be – you may be able to raise – uh, uh, you know, a crop with X number of dollars of inputs in Iowa, but it may be significantly less or more expensive in California. And so as you put together any kind of strategy to try to help farmers, again, it's about flexibility. It's about recognizing that there are significant regional differences. There are differences in commodities. Uh, and as you try to put something together, it's 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 pretty difficult to stitch something together and still stay within the confines of whatever uh, budget limitations you have. And, and, and I, I will tell you, I'm particularly concerned, Jeff, in all of this, and I think there is some, some concern about the Farm Bill. You know, as we look at uh, conversations about debt ceiling, and, they, and, and there are some who want to couple it with significant reductions to the budget, well, here's the, here's the newsflash. Uh, those reductions are not likely to come from the Defense Department. They're not likely to come from the veterans' uh, VA. They're not likely to come from Medicare or Medicaid. So what's left? So if you're talking about a significant reduction in funding, what's left? Well, you know, one of the things we're talking about here is what's left. 
So I have pretty deep concerns about how this is all going to work itself out in terms of our ability to make sure that we continue to have the, you know, the flexibility we need, the resources we need, the support we need for, for getting agriculture in a, in a better place uh, over time. You have been the tip of the spear uh, between the U.S. and Mexico on Mexican President Obrador's plan uh, to not allow GMO corn in beginning in 2024. Does the Mexican president truly understand the implications of his proposal, in your opinion? Well, he's a pretty smart fellow. Um, uh, I I think he understands very well the politics of of what he's... uh, what he's advocating uh, down in Mexico, which is essentially uh, uh, catering to uh, uh, the pride that Mexicans have in, uh, in in the establishment of white corn, in particular, uh, over 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 time. Uh, he, here's the challenge, Jeff. Uh, Mexico, like the United States, is a sovereign nation, uh, and the president of that country has. Um, every right in the world uh, to uh, enter into decrees and proposals and so forth um, in an effort to try to uh, assist and help uh, uh, farmers or business owners in the, in, in the country. But uh, the, the reality is we also have a trading relationship with Mexico, and, and trading relations relationships work best when they are governed by science and, and sort of internationally recognized rules, that there's some predictability and some stability to the trading relationship. Um, when you begin to sort of fudge a little bit on the science, when you begin to to have culture sort of work its way into the decision-making process, well, that's a very slippery slope. And I think right now we're, what we're basically dealing with in Mexico is saying to them, look, we... we you know, you can do what you, what you, uh, what you are pla- planning on doing. But two things: one, our reaction to it is going to be uh, to trigger the uh, provisions of the USMCA that are that there is the principal reason why agriculture was supportive of this trade agreement, because we knew that when these disputes arose, it, it would pr- actually provide a, a vehicle for resolving them, uh, which we didn't have under under NAFTA. Uh, so that's one reaction. Second reaction is you really do need to think about if you were to implement the decree that you've signed as it's currently crafted, it would limit your ability to purchase yellow corn from American producers, which frankly is two-thirds of, of the feed that you have available to your livestock industry. So, you're, you know, you need to think about that and, the, and its impact on your livestock, which is why... They've come up with a proposal that says, well, you know, we're not going to enforce the decree until 2025, extending this period of time. So they're going to do what they're going to do, but they need to know that our reaction and response to it is going to be fully in compliance with the UMCA, supportive of a science-based and rules-based system, because that's the only way it works. With all respect to the Mexican president, is there enough non-GMO corn to satisfy their demand anywhere else? Uh, well, I don't think there is, and if there were, it'd be incredibly expensive, right? Which limits the amount that they can purchase. Uh, and I don't think, you know, I think at the end of the day, they, I think there's an understanding and appreciation of that by uh, Mexican officials. And I think, you know, I had the conversation with uh, uh, President uh, Lopez Obrador, and so he he heard it from me. And basically, I laid it out. It's Mr. President, 66% of your feed 
comes from the United States, and you're just not going to be able to supplant it with your own capacity or being able to purchase capacity on the market. Because if you if you were to try to do that, you'd find it's enormously expensive, and as a result, you would ultimately see a shrinkage of your livestock industry, which in turn would shrink supplies to your consumers, which would drive prices up. And you don't want to do that. I mean, you're very concerned about that. Uh, you know, the, the other issue, uh, Jeff, on this is that, the, you know, I think what's really driving all of this is he's got concern about uh, glyphosate. Uh, and, uh, you know, there, there, there can be some misunderstanding about all of that. And uh, he's, he's got one feeling and attitude about it. And, and I think what he thinks he's doing is that he's helping to drive or wants to help drive the industry to create alternatives. Well, the industry uh, is working on that because not because of what he's doing down in Mexico, but because farmers are beginning to experience some resistance, right? Uh, some uh, the, the, the inability of glyphosate to do what it used to do. So I think over time you're going to see that the seed companies develop alternatives, but it's going to take time. It's not something that can be done uh, quickly. But most likely that's still going to be a genetically engineered product. Well, absolutely. Absolutely. And it may be gene edited, you know, as opposed to uh, genetically modified. I mean, that's, you know, a significant, uh, it's a difference with a, with a distinction, which is instead of putting foreign material into the DNA, you're essentially taking the DNA as it exists and you're, and you're, Sort of altering, you're just you're you're doing what Mother Nature does, but you're just doing it on an accelerated basis. And so, for for many, there seems to be the possibility of a greater acceptance of gene editing than of uh, of the genetically modified methods. Uh, from an agriculture perspective, Mr. Secretary, is the U.S. doing all that it can? Uh, to support the Ukraine, I, I believe it is. I, I believe it is. Um, you know, we've uh, we've early in the process triggered the uh, Bill Emerson Trust and used that to provide uh, uh, the purchase of grain that, in turn, helped to supply the markets that would traditionally normally be supported by uh, Ukrainian grain. Uh, we've obviously advocated and continue to advocate for op- the opening of the ports uh, that allow a freer flow uh, of. Uh, Ukrainian grain uh, to North Africa and the, and the key uh, key markets that they service. We've committed through an MOU that I signed with the Ministry of Agriculture in Ukraine. We've committed to working with them when this war ends, and we hope it ends quickly and soon, uh, to help rebuild um, uh, their their agriculture. Obviously, there's been a lot of uh, incredible devastation to uh, not only their land, but to a lot of the infrastructure. Um, you know, I think that uh, working with uh, USAID, uh, you know, we've provided uh, additional assistance and storage and additional ways in which we are uh, trying to provide uh, uh, the, the necessary resources to allow their farmers to continue to stay in business and be able to, to, uh, to generate a crop, notwithstanding the difficulties they're going through right now. Mr. Secretary, time always goes too fast when we're talking, but thank you for taking time to be with us on this edition of Open Mic. It is Open Mic, and today you have the last word. Well, I appreciate, Jeff, the opportunity to visit. And, and again, I, I just think I want folks to understand that, that I'm very optimistic and hopeful about the future of American agriculture because I think we finally have figured out 
that there is a way in which, uh, and a better way in which we can can work for all sized operators uh, in, in this country. We think agriculture, the diversity in agriculture, is a is a great plus. It's a great strength of American agriculture, both in terms of crops and in production methods, but also in terms of size. Uh, and we think it has a direct impact and effect on rural communities. And, and rural America is, is just incredibly vital to the future of this country. And so uh, working on that bottom-up, middle-up philosophy the president has directed us to, uh, I'm looking forward to uh, continuing the work for expanded opportunity for everybody. Our thanks to USDA Secretary Tom Vilsack, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. Crop insurance, the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Nally.